to the Food Startups Podcast, connecting the opaque world of food startups. This is Daniel Imri Satanayaka of Tiny Farms, and you are listening to the Food Startups Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode number 86. Today, we have an inside look at the natural foods industry, and not just, you know, in the last couple of years, but the history since the 70s and 80s. The former head of marketing for Whole Foods, Sprouts Farmers Market, Fresh Fields, which many of the younger people may not know, but they were a huge retail chain that Whole Foods bought out. Now, thinking about our businesses, our startups, most of them are around the natural and gourmet foods. To be strategic, I think you have to understand the history of the industry. And I've read, let's see, you know, I've read about Bob's Red Mill, Kendall Jackson, but this one really ties all of it together. I cannot recommend this anymore. You have to read this if you're starting a natural foods business today to understand the history of the industry as well as the baby boomer generation. They're the people that got it to where it is today. Still only 5% as we talk about in the show, but 5% of all food in the US, that's, we'll say grocery sales, not an exact stat there, but that's still really big and it's grown so much. And you'll see that the battle in the 70s and 80s, that natural foods versus conventional big agro is pretty similar to the one we have today. So I hope you can learn from Joe. And he's also going to give advice to the millennial generation what to think about when starting a food company. So enjoy this show and please go to foodstartupspodcast.com slash natural profits, N-A-T-U-R-A-L-P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S to find all links and notes on this episode. Thank you very much. He has been at the marketing helm of some of the most progressive brands of the last two decades. Fresh Fields, Whole Foods, Balducci's, and Sprouts Farmer's Market. And he's been in the head of the marketing in a lot of those roles. During a 31-year career that has also included stints in sports, media, and nonprofits, you know, he's uh, worked directly with Steve Case from AOL, the great baseball player for the Baltimore Orioles, Cal Ripken. He's a, uh, I would describe him, you know, just based on the way he wrote his book, he has a behind-the-scenes look at the, the natural foods industry, and he is the author of Natural Profits. Joe Dobrow, how's it going? Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Matt. Thank you. I'm doing well. Great. Well, first off, I uh, I have to ask you about the book. It's very, very well researched. It weaves U.S. history with the natural foods history. How long did it take you to write this book? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I often tell people that it took about a year and a half, but the year and a half was only about 14 weeks of writing, and most of the rest of the time was sitting around waiting for it to get published. Uh, you know, I lived... I lived this book for a long time. I spent, as you indicated, a lot of years working in the natural foods industry and getting to know a lot of the pioneers and the legends. And I guess I had collected a lot of those stories in my mind and and to a certain extent in my files over the years. So while I did have to do a fair amount of supplemental research and travel around the country and do a lot of interviews, I think more than 100 of them, Nevertheless, the structure was pretty clear in my mind, and sometimes that's the the hardest part of a book, just trying to figure out what you're going to include, what you're going to exclude, and how it's all going to play together. That was easy for me, and so the writing was, was all pretty easy. The addition of all of the history components was... Uh, in part because that's just a passion of mine. I, I was a history major in college, and I 
kind of wove together history and business during my MBA program at, at Yale in the early 90s. But in order to really go back and look at the roots of the natural foods industry, in some cases going back to the late 19th century, but in particular in the post-World War II era, there was a lot of digging that I had to do there. And I just felt that it was it was vital in order to tell the story and understand how this industry went from being a hippie sideshow to being a $110 billion plus colossus that you had to have the context of what was happening in American society. So that's that's why there's so much rich history in it. And Joe, so we talked about this before, but being part of the millennials, most of the guests on my show are millennials, but we have had, as I mentioned, Bob's Red Mill and Frida's and the listeners are usually the younger demographic that is looking to start food. And that's why I kind of want to make it a required reading. I think everyone should read this book. But I want to hear in in your words, why do you think, you know, listeners to this show should read Natural Profits? You know, I started this project thinking that I wanted to, in effect, create a guide to entrepreneurship. Because if you look at the natural products industry, it really is a a bubbling cauldron of entrepreneurship. There's so much activity going on there. At Expo West, which just concluded in Anaheim this past weekend, there were over 3,000 exhibitors, which itself is a great number, but more remarkable still is the fact that about 25% of those exhibitors were there for the first time. And that's a number that has held constant uh, throughout all of the expos over 30 years. So for there to be that much turnover, that much new business, new startup activity, I think is a is a real bellwether of how much uh, entrepreneurship continues to guide this industry. So that was the, the goal when I started out. As I got deeper into it, I realized that to define what an entrepreneur is and how they operate and what sorts of problems they face is very difficult because there's so many different shades of entrepreneurs there. And so the book became perhaps a little bit more of a history and a little bit less of a how-to guide. Nevertheless, I think that what it shows is that this is an industry from which there are many lessons to be learned, especially for the millennial generation. You know, this is a, a cohort in the American demographic right now, already one out of every four Americans falls into it. Soon, one out of every two Americans will be of the millennial generation. And it is a group that cares very deeply about social justice, cares about authenticity and transparency and wanting to make a difference in the world. They don't want to be advertised to. They don't want business as usual. You know, they have grown up in a world of recession, terrorism, roiling politics out of Washington, the knowledge that they're not going to do as well as their parents' generation did, and the the combination of all of those lessons has led them to become a very different group of people. And they're people who I think want to hear those lessons about how people can change the world and want to understand how if business, as uh, in the words of, of Gary Hirschberg, the founder of Stonyfield Farm, if business is, is what got us in, into this mess, business is the only power on earth that's great enough to be able to get us out of it. So that's why I think the millennial generation in particular, but, but everybody uh, can benefit from reading the book because you, you really walk away from it inspired and understanding that we're not just selling food out there. We're creating a social movement. And Joe, so I would, I want to add to that because I think it's very important to have a history and 
you use like, for instance, we'll get into John Mackey in Whole Foods and compare it to him to Michael Jordan and his ruthless competitor, right? Ruthless and an amazing, smart competitor. So to me, it's very interesting. You have to know the history, just like Michael Jordan, you know, he studied Wilt Chamberlain and, and, you know, George Gervin and, and people in his time. I think it's important to understand where they come from. To us, I think it's also interesting as, as millennials because our parents' generation, you know, tell us, let's go back in, into history. So the, uh, you know, Mo Siegel, you know, Hirschberg, all of the, uh, the, they were in their late twenties, early thirties around that age group. You know, what was right. their mindset when they started their, their companies? Yes, this was a group that, that had been born in the immediate post-war era, so they were the, the leading edge of the baby boomers. And whereas the millennials have grown up with all of those, uh, the, the confluence of all those factors that I mentioned a moment ago, the boomers grew up with the optimism of the post-war period almost immediately counteracted by the reality of the Cold War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War that followed uh, all of the tumult of the 60s. And so this was a group that was violently thrust into uh, a world of change. Some of them took a very peaceful way of protesting that. Some of them took a more aggressive way. A lot of them dropped out of college. They went off uh, into the right livelihood movement. Uh, they formed uh, co-ops and communes and you know, did anything other than business as usual. Uh, that was the context for their lives. When they started to become of age, as you're saying, then they got into their, their mid and late 20s, and they realized that they had to make their way in the world. The food industry was a very logical destination for them because it had been hijacked by big agribusiness at this point. What for millennia had been all natural and organic, even though we didn't call it that, um, had all of a sudden flipped over to becoming highly synthetic and there weren't even any labeling laws. So you didn't know what was in your food, uh, but it didn't look like regular food. It had all sorts of odd colors and shapes and sweeteners and what have you added to it. And so this this group of flower children from from the early 60s entered business with the idea that this was an arena that they could change. This was one that they could impact. And then it, it wasn't, um, forgive the pun, but it wasn't natural to be eating things that, that looked like that. Uh, you know, that old saying, you are what you eat, was a repulsive thought to people who had uh, come of age during that time. On top of that, you had some external events, and I write about these quite a bit in Natural Profits. Uh, one of those was the publication of Silent Spring in 1962, Rachel Carson's book that in part detailed the horrors of DDT and how it had left uh, entire populations of uh, animals dead, fields fallow. Oh, so DDT was uh, kind of the, the first great pesticide, and it was invented during, uh, well, it was really perfected during the Second World War, used by the U.S. military uh, in the Pacific Theater to try to rid their camps of insects and bugs. It was highly effective. And so right before the end of the Second World War, it was released for public use, and it was viewed as a miracle substance. Uh, people were gleefully spraying this all over their fields and their, their home gardens. There were little dancing cartoon characters that were invented that, that uh, appeared in their ads saying, DDT is good for me. And it was, it was said that DDT was so potent that it could kill a fly that alighted on a barn door 60 days after the DDT had been applied. Well, 
One thing that they didn't really count on was that nature always finds a way, as they said in Jurassic Park. And many insects have numerous generations inside of a year. And so those who developed some resistance to DDT quickly bred. And in in point of fact, just a few years after DDT was released, uh, that same potency uh, had now become impotent for many species of flies and, and other insects. Nevertheless, it was widely applied. And it was not until 1962 when Silent Spring came out that the, the true horrors of this, uh, this terrible chemical substance came to light, and uh, it caused many, many human health issues, many deaths, mutations, uh, so on and so forth, and it was eventually banned in the United States, although at that point we continued to export it to other countries. So that was one of those seminal events that this generation was impacted by. Uh, a little bit later on, there were similar things with cyclamates, which was an, an additive uh, that was widely used in diet soda, but was later proven to be carcinogenic. Uh, or the when the uh, there was a giant oil spill off the coast of California uh, during this time, or the uh, Cuyahoga River in Cleveland caught fire, and so it was sort of this this whole conspiracy of different. Uh, events that were all of a sudden coming to light that drove people like Mo Siegel to start a company like Celestial Seasonings or Gary Hirschberg to um, to create a yogurt that eventually became Stonyfield Farm uh, because it was a reaction to all that they had they had seen and grown up with during this this uh, period of great revolt in the 60s. Wow. And so it's interesting, too, because you mentioned this in the book. I'd say maybe more so back then, but there still are some startups that are not business-minded, but they're, they're change-minded, but then they realize uh, the natural food space is incredibly competitive. You have to become uh, a business. But, you know, we're going to have to move on to to John Mackey because it's he's such an interesting character, you know, the founder of Whole Foods, because he kind of had it all. He was a little bit, it, it seemed, I mean, he was different from the, the rest of this group in the sense right. that, you know, he he definitely very idealistic. We'll talk about his libertarian views, which is ironic given the recent news that just came out and the uh, the decentralization of his stores. But the way he competed, where kind it reminds me of Jordan. I mean, uh, we don't have recordings of everything he said in the courts, but you know, telling like I can't Mike Gilliland um, from Wild Oats and Boulder, yeah. just saying, "Hey, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to destroy you." I do have to uh, share probably the the funniest part of the book to me was, and I'll, I'll read this here. It's where Gilliland got his revenge in a sly way by every time he sent his uh, he sent pot to uh, Texas from Colorado, he would he would put the return address of uh, uh, John Mackey from Whole Foods. But uh, he, I, he was definitely, uh, let's see, uh, John Mackey was a, I mean, look at Whole Foods today. I mean, it speaks for itself. But, you know, you were at Fresh Fields when it got acquired. And, and you could maybe argue that of all of the, and I'll, I'll give listeners a background, but Whole Foods went around from Texas buying up all these other natural foods markets in other states. I mean, continue buying and buying to get to where they are today. And they're, you could argue they're, their number one competitor was Fresh Fields, which started in, in, in Rockville, Maryland, in, in my backyard. And uh, well, I guess, you know, Khan, the the elder, and then uh, Ordan, you know, the, the younger running the day to day. I guess um, there was a part where where uh, I think it was Ordan and uh, Mackie are like in the bathroom and and, uh, and uh, Mackie says, you know, you're just like me. So there's no way like you'll you ever want to sell. And he said, listen, I'm not like you. It just seemed like he, you know, Mackie was the most competitive one out of out of all of them. And I know I would guess that you because you worked at Whole Foods uh, as head of marketing, you interacted with John Mackie uh, quite a bit. I, sh- I certainly did. And yeah, that's a that's a good quick summary of uh, the story that I tell in the book. Whole Foods began like many other stores did. And John founded it 
originally in 1978 as a company that he called Safer Way, which was kind of his little way of sticking it to the man. And that's, that's always been part of what makes up John Mackey. I mean, he is, he is a extremely smart, very competitive, but very passionate guy as well. And when he found his way into the natural foods business by hook or by crook, he knew that he had arrived. But what he saw that none of these other early retailers did was the potential for this to grow and eventually to reshape the, the world of food and even of agriculture in the United States and in the world. So John gradually, uh, he spent a lot of time cooperating and sharing information in the early days with the other retailers because nobody thought that there was going to be a national retailer of organic foods at that point. Everybody kind of had their own niche. You had Bread and Circus in Boston and Mrs. Gooch's in California and uh, Whole Foods in Texas and, and then a little bit later uh, Alfalfa's and Wild Oats in Boulder. But John saw this potential and so he began to, to bring people together and then as you said he began to, to buy up all these companies one by one and so he began applying what he would later call this this concept of conscious capitalism he is a capitalist through and through and in, he does have very strong libertarian views that sometimes rub people the wrong way but it was all rooted in this notion that the this was a, a business of i mean excuse the gushiness of it but but of love People who went into this business did it out of great passion. Freshfields, which was launched in the uh, early 1990s, in fact, we're just about to hit the 25th anniversary of the first Freshfields in Rockville, but it was a very different concept. It was born out of design. Mark Ordan, coming out of Goldman Sachs and earlier out of Harvard Business School, brought a lot of money to the game, brought a lot of management acumen, and looked at the landscape of the country and said, we can build a big natural foods company. We can combine the notions of the buying power of a supermarket with the passion of the natural foods business and create something that's really going to grow fast. And it did. So after that, that very first store opened in May of 1991, Freshfields grew to 22 stores and about $250 million uh, in just five years' time, which was an amazing growth curve. And so, yeah, these two companies with very different mindsets and very, very different attitudes began eyeballing each other from afar and then gradually close up. And then, yes, it, it did eventually lead, lead to Whole Foods uh, purchasing fresh fields in 1996. Uh, John today still runs the company. Now he's got many other trusted lieutenants there. I think Walter Robb, who's the CEO or co-CEO, is uh, one of the most brilliant minds and best retailers I've ever met in my life. But John is still the visionary and, and the inspiration behind the company, even now in his mid-60s. And uh, the, the thing about him that is, is really remarkable, and I think it's, it's not true of anybody else that I've met in business, is that he is willing to adapt. And he has many times over the course of his career, the most recent of which, which you made uh, passing reference to a moment ago, is that for all these years, as documented in Natural Profits, Whole Foods' point of differentiation was its culture of decentralization. They've always pushed power out to the very edges of the company and given regions and even stores the ability to make their own buying decisions, to a certain extent their own hiring and pricing decisions, things like that. But it's been a difficult couple of years for Whole Foods, and they've gotten a tremendous amount of competition coming from the conventional supermarkets. Kroger has, has done, I think, probably a better job than anybody else in the country of that, but the 
club stores, Costco, Target, even Walmart have all made strong incursions into this space. And so it's not the same game that it was even a few years ago. And in acknowledgement of that, uh, just this past week, Whole Foods announced some major changes to the way that they structure their company and their culture. And it's going to lead to a little more of a conventional look to it, more centralization, more centralized buying, trying to take advantage of the economies of scale that were always intentionally set aside and Joe, in the that's, past. That's what Trader Joe's is doing, right? Trader Joe's is centralized, correct? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, look, it's this is an extremely competitive business. And in the natural food space, as much growth as there has been, despite all those 3,000 companies exhibiting at Expo West, it still only represents about $5 out of every 100 spent on food in the United States. So there is a tremendous advantage to be gained if you can somehow squeeze a little bit more uh, economy of scale out of the business. Take a little bit of cost out of the system, add a little bit of sale into the system, a little bit of revenue into the system. And if we can get up to 7 or 8 or 9% of sales, as is projected by the end of this decade, by the way, I think that's good for the planet. It's certainly good for, for all of those of us who have been working in the industry as well. So, uh, you know, as, as these uh, competitive battles have taken shape, I think it's more important than ever that the natural foods industry not abandon its its principles. It is an industry that still believes strongly in the triple bottom line, but nevertheless adopt some new business practices. And if that means uh, a little more centralization, probably a good thing, uh, although I think only time will tell what the impact of that will be on whole foods culture. It's interesting too. You mentioned like the competitiveness and and uh, yeah, John Mackey adjusting like the size of his stores. He's really like so. He's uh, I think a fault of some great entrepreneurs is they. I mean, I'm not saying John Mackey doesn't have a big ego, but what I am saying is that a lot of uh, we'll say CEOs and and leaders they do great, but they let their ego get in the way. They're unable to adapt because he right. seems to be like, all right, Joe, you think we should do X? I believe in Y. Well, uh, well, you bet your bonus on it. You know those types of things. And he, he seems to he seems to be very pragmatic despite all of uh, he's, he's very yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's 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 definitely true. And yeah, that there is that story that I tell in the book about one of the regional presidents who really wanted to use radio advertising. And John has never been a big believer in mass media advertising. And so John gave him it true to the Whole Foods culture. He gave him the leeway, he gave him the rope to hang himself. But he told him that he had to bet his bonus on it. So yeah, I mean, I do think it's it's an unusual aspect of of his character and uh, it raises the interesting question, particularly with John and Walter and, and uh, AC Gallo, who's also part of that leadership group, uh, all getting up there in years. What does the future hold for Whole Foods? You know, once you get to the question of succession, they certainly have been training uh, an, another generation of, uh, of leaders out there, but do they have that visionary leadership that, that John brought to the company originally. I mean, that's probably a, an unfair question because nobody has that sort of vision. But to be able to play in, in a supercharged competitive environment like this right now is definitely going to require some new thinking out there. And, you know, just to bring it back to where you had begun this question, sure, I mean, the analogy between John Mack and Michael Jordan was very clear in my mind. And so I, I did... Uh, go into a little bit of detail about Michael Jordan and his, his competitiveness in there. And I refer to uh, uh, John Mackey in those, in those uh, same tones. Uh, you know, uh, John Mackey is the, is the Michael Jordan of the natural foods industry, or Michael Jordan is the John Mackey of the, of the basketball world. It remains to be seen. But, you know, 
Jordan, like Mackey, like Whole Foods, at his peak was unstoppable. But he changed, he aged, the league adapted. And so, you know, in his latter years, Jordan didn't have quite the the lift and the acceleration and the explosiveness that he did earlier, but he was so smart. You know, he was he, he knew that he could trash talk his opponents into a little mistake. You know, he, he became a great passer and just a very clever player. And, uh, you know, I think that that analogy holds up here, too, that you, you have to learn every aspect of the business in order to ultimately be able to compete as the business changes through its life cycle. And Joe, I think I just want to give listeners because I only know about Freshfields because I remember my mom going there, but a lot of listeners are probably too young to know that Freshfields was a very big chain before Whole Foods bought them. And so going back to that, you know, Mark Ordan, it kind of reminds me of Jordan and Larry Bird when Larry Bird was, he was known as the most competitive guy in the league. And I think this was early in his career, like 86, 87, when Jordan scored 63 points in a, uh, a playoff game. And you mentioned how uh, Bird said that was God disguised as, as Michael Jordan. So it just, he, you know, uh, listeners, you'll find a very interesting anecdote about this kind of crazy guru who put on this convention in uh, in Texas and he had people like licking his toes. But besides that, I'd say the, the most like interesting character dynamic is John Mackey. And it comes across, now, there's some great characters in there, but he definitely stands out on top, but it's just the same thing where he just took it to another level. And you mentioned Whole Foods has has or whoever is going to be his successor has incredibly big shoes to fill. It makes you think, right, of of Tim Cook for Steve Jobs, and we'll see how yeah. that uh, that plays out. And Steve Jobs definitely another dynamic and interesting love by many, but uh, also yeah, and this and it's a great it's a great analogy. Uh, I think at, at one point in in Natural Profits, I say that you know the the apotheosis of entrepreneurship in this country is always the tech industry, right? So, you know, when we think about the great entrepreneurs, we always think about Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, and deservedly so. Nevertheless, I argue in this book that I think that people like John Mackey or Mark Ordan or Gary Hirschberg or Mo Siegel or Seth Goldman from Honest Tea right there in, in Bethesda, Maryland, all deserve a place on on stage alongside these guys because what they have done in creating this industry uh, has arguably had more of a planet-changing impact than anything that the technology people have done. And I think it's also had a business-changing impact because it has it's been become such an influential industry. You know, now I think it is accepted and expected that a business in the 21st century is going to have a purpose right at the center of what it's doing. It is going to have to be transparent. They're going to have to be very authentic in, in how they present themselves. And they're going to have to tackle some of society's larger issues, not just their own operational ones. That ethic never took hold in earlier generations. And it wouldn't have taken hold in technology companies if the, if they were the only models of entrepreneurship out there. But it has always been baked into the DNA of the natural foods industry. And so that is exactly why I think you, when you look around the American economy nowadays, you find more and more companies issuing reports, sustainability reports or corporate social responsibility programs, adding officers in those roles to their inner circle, uh, spending much more time thinking about issues like uh, clean water or social justice that 
really never would have entered the conversation had it not been for this this game changing effect that the natural foods industry has had. So you know, the I hope that that people who read Natural Profits end up walking away from it with that that kind of a, a take on it and look at this industry and is in the uh, important role that it has played in in the history of the country. Wow, and and Joe, so I, I really appreciate that explanation, and I want to try to extrapolate a you know for the audience which I'll repeat are people with food startups, some former guests on the show, some people that have boosted Expo West and some people that still, you know, are going to farmer's markets or they, they're just baking out of their kitchen. But it seems like you would tell them about this triple bottom line, you know, integrate your, your core values and what you want to see as, as a younger person today or a millennial and how to change the world without uh, being too cliche. But it's really about things you can do uh, being socially conscious and to change the world in order to stick around and create a culture and a a long-standing success. Yeah, I think that purpose has has come to play a much more important role in business nowadays. A- everything that we do has to have both a commercial impact, a business impact, but also a social one. And that is the expectation of consumers, and it is the expectation of employees. And especially because this the millennial generation is so large, making up a substantial portion of both the consumers and the employees, they demand it. You know, they they are not going to tolerate companies that are not playing by the rules. They're just they're going to they're going to leave, or they are not going to shop for those products. And it's a, a highly commoditized world. It's easy to find many of the same products through through multiple channels, often at lower prices. So the reason that people are loyal to a brand in this day and age is not necessarily because of its product selection or its price or even its customer service, but increasingly it's because they know that that company is doing the right thing and that it has goals that extend beyond the bounds of its shareholders. So I strongly encourage anybody who resonates with with that sentiment to look at this industry, consider it as a place that you should work or that you should support with your with your wallet because it has been out on the leading edge of this this purpose revolution for quite a number of years now. Wow. So Joe, I guess I want to phrase this last question. I've been thinking about it in my head now for a couple of minutes. So I want to talk a little bit about about you, about Joe Dobrow. I mean, you have obviously a very keen behind the scenes understanding of the history of the industry, but where it's going. So what's next for you? What projects are you working on these days? <laughs> Well, I sometimes feel like I've got three or four full-time jobs now. You know, I I stepped out of the industry a, a few years ago. Uh, I had kind of replicated the role that I had had at Freshfields and Whole Foods with Sprouts Farmers Market uh, out here in Arizona uh, for a few years and helped to build that company. It's now become a really big, you know, two hundred plus stores, $3 million company. I mean, it's, it's amazing to see the growth. But at this point, I um, focused on some different aspects of that business and some other businesses. Uh, one of my great passions right now is a program that I started a few years ago called Embark, M-B-A-R-K, and you can find it at embark.net online. And it's a program just to try to steer business school students into the natural products industry or other industries that have purpose at, at the center. Reason being that I think that the, the industry for all of its heart is sometimes lacking a little bit in smarts and in skills. And these are still the sorts of things that are taught in business schools. It's just that the, the there's never really been much of a, a bridge between those worlds. So with the Embark program, we've begun 
directing some of the more progressive MBA students out there into the natural products industry. And at Expo West this past week, I had 30 MBA students from 15 different schools all around the country there, introducing them, helping them network, trying to give them a little boost in their careers. It's a really rewarding program. Hope it's going to grow. Not not exactly sure where we're going to go with it yet, but that's been one kind of logical manifestation of, uh, of my past. Uh, I'm also working on another book right now, which is a, a lot of fun. It's, it's quite different. Uh, it's called Pioneers of Promotion. And there's a website for that one too, of course, pioneersofpromotion.com. But this one focuses on the early roots of the marketing industry and you know, going well back before the natural foods industry uh, and looking at some of the marketing geniuses in the late 19th century who without the benefit of technology or mass media, were able to attract mammoth crowds to entertainments like Buffalo Bill's Wild West or Barnum and Bailey's Circus or the Great World's Fair of 1893, the Chicago World's Columbian Exposition. And so I've been digging into the lives of some of these really remarkable people as we approach the 100th anniversary of uh, the very last Wild West show that Buffalo Bill did in November of 1916. So uh, working on that book, hope to have it out in uh, a year or so. And uh, and then I also continue to do a lot of consulting work. And not surprisingly, I'm sure uh, for you, that it's in the purpose arena. Uh, so we've created an organization called the Purpose Collaborative, uh, part of uh, something that was launched by one of my mentors, Carol Cohn. And uh, we're trying to find all the best agencies and individuals out there who are purpose at the core and who can help to uh, steer brands in this direction. And so that's also very, uh, very rewarding work. So somehow with, uh, with all of those things, I'm managing to fill a good 70 hours a week and there's just no slowing down. Wow. And, and uh, well, I'm honored then that you found uh, an hour to hang out on our show and, and teach listeners about it. Again, I recommend Natural Profits. I, I think it's required reading for anyone starting a food business. As you know, I've had a lot of authors on the show, some amazing books like The the Banana Man with uh, Rich Cohen, The Fish Who Ate the Whale, which is a fantastic book. But I wouldn't say it's required. I'd say this is a required book. I'm so glad that that Lindsay Rosenberg of Cherryvale Farms, who was crushing it with her, her baking mixes business and was just at Expo West, recommended the book to me. Joe, where can listeners find you if they're interested in Embark or any of your uh, current ventures? Yeah, well, thank you for for that really kind praise, man. I appreciate what you're doing. I think trying to use technology to be able to connect to people in this business and and to the millennial generation as well, I think is a, is a brilliant move. So congratulations on that. Yeah, uh, I mean, easiest easiest way to find me is just through one of those websites. So you can go to embark.net. Uh, you can go to pioneersofpromotion.com. You can go to purposecollaborative.com, and there's contact information for me there. And uh, always happy to talk about these topics with people. Great. And listeners, I will put links to the book and all of the websites that we talked about and mentioned at foodstartupspodcast.com. Oh, and natural profits. Did you have one more thing to say? Yeah, just, uh, you, know, you know, the book itself, uh, you know, like a lot of books nowadays, uh, it's hard to find in bookstores because uh, it's been out for about two years now, but you can certainly find it on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, or you can also get it directly through the Natural Profits website, which is just Natural Profits. That's P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S.com. Perfect. Yeah. And I wanted to spell profits, not profits as in making money, but P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S. Now, Joe, I mean, I'll link, would you prefer they buy it from Amazon or from your website? What's better for you? 
Oh, it doesn't matter. I mean, I think uh, if if you go through Amazon, you can also get the the ebook version of it, which has photographs in it, uh, which the uh, the print version does not. But you know, whatever's most convenient for people, um, I'm I'm really happy to get the story out there. I, it was a, obviously a, a great passion of mine to write it, and I really enjoy talking about it and seeing people react to it. So uh, happy to get it out there any way we can. Well, it's interesting because I did not look up your bio until I finished reading the book, which was interesting because when you told me if you would have told me that you didn't work in natural foods and you wrote it in 14 weeks, I would have said no way, but that's only because <laughs> you spent 30 years in the industry because there's a, it's very, very like comprehensive. But anyway, Joe, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure and hope to have you back soon to talk about your next book. Terrific. Thank you, man. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, find us online at foodstartupspodcast.com. Thank you.